John chapter 2. Verses 1 through 12 is part of our sermon text for this evening. I'll explain what I mean by that. We, we came to Article 10 in the Belgic Confession, which teaches us that Jesus Christ is true God, and he is the eternal God, one in substance with the Father. And we looked at the beginning of the Gospel of John last week, and I, I thought it would be appropriate if we took the rest of this Easter season leading up to Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, uh, to see from various angles the truth in Article 10 of the Belgian Confession that Jesus Christ is God. And so what we're doing tonight is we're going to look at the first and the last of the miraculous signs that Jesus does in the Gospel of John. Uh, These signs are given to prove who Jesus is, and show by his power that he is indeed God. We'll look at uh, various other passages in the coming weeks from the Gospel of John uh, next Sunday as we share the Lord's Supper together, and we will look at John chapter 6, where Jesus talks of his flesh as true food and his blood as true drink, and uh, we'll go on and see other ones as well. But tonight we're reading from John 2 and John 11. This is the wedding uh, at Cana in Galilee, and then the raising of Lazarus. So uh, there are quite a few verses for us to get through, so let us uh, read these. This is God's word given to us for our good. Let's give our attention to its reading. John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. And then if you would, go over to John 11. Let's hear this wonderful story about our Lord, the death and resurrection of Lazarus. A man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister 
and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you are going back there? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. You don't need to look much farther than Hollywood and the amount of money that uh, 
movies can sometimes bring in to see that people love stories. And they, they love stories that have characters that have really interesting background stories. You can take, for instance, some of these superhuman or superhero stories that have come out in the last 10 or 15 years or so. Some of them have made hundreds of millions of dollars. They continue to make astonishing money. They fascinate people because uh, many of these characters come to Earth from other planets, other galaxies, sometimes to hurt, sometimes to help. As you think about why it is that human beings tend to love stories or they're drawn into them and they love to involve themselves in stories, listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 18. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. I was reading what a pastor had written this week and he says this, you can read every fairy tale that was ever written, every mystery thriller, every ghost story, and you will never find anything so shocking, so strange, so weird and spellbinding as the story of the incarnation of the Son of God. His point was that if you can grow up in the church or if you spend many years in the church, your wonder and your awe can tend to fade regarding who Jesus is. If this happens, there grows a disconnect between what we know is true or what we want to believe to be true and what we are living out as true. If the truth of who Jesus is does not grip our hearts, we have allowed the truth to fade from the center of our lives. Loving stories is a good thing. That's something that God has put inside of most of us. But we ought to remember that as God has made many of us to love stories and to want to know about them, he has given us the best story of all, a true one about his son who came to live and to die for us. John writes his gospel so that we would be caught up in awe and wonder about who Jesus is. That we would be amazed at who he is and what he has done. We need to uh, remember that as we read John's appeal to believe. Everything that he writes is, as he says at the end of this gospel, so that you may believe. And we see Jesus said that even in the story of Lazarus. So we look tonight at these two miraculous signs that Jesus performed. The wedding in Cana and the resurrection of Lazarus. In order that we might see more truly, more clearly who Jesus is and that it would grip our hearts, that we would believe and that we would receive, as John says in chapter 1, believing and receiving and that we would hold the truth of Jesus and be in awe of it, that we would wonder at it, that we would thank God for it and that we would show forth that thankfulness in our hearts. There's uh, several points about the divinity of Jesus, and so what I'm going to do is just sort of name them, and we'll show, uh, coming out of the stories, how the stories show them. So it won't be three main points or anything. It'll be more uh, running points about the deity, the divinity of Christ being true God. So the first one is this. Jesus is the God of creation and new creation. The God of creation and new creation. In chapter 1 of John, uh, John has pulled back the curtain on the creation of the world, hasn't he? He says, in the beginning, God, in the beginning was the word. And of course, the, the connection there is to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So John pulls back the curtain to say, at that world-creating event, you pull back the curtain and you see the word of God, Jesus Christ, the Son, was there with the Father, creating 
all things. And this first miracle in the Gospel of John shows that Jesus is not only the God of creation, he's the God of the new creation. John has carefully shown us that this is the seventh day in his gospel. He started counting days in chapter 1, verse 19, when John the Baptist was questioned. And then he goes forth from there and he counts seven days. And so the point of that is that this miracle at the wedding in Cana is on the seventh day of John's telling this gospel. If you connect that to Genesis chapter 1, what is it? That is a week, and that's significant because John is aiming to show us that in this gospel, Jesus is going to reflect the creative power of God by bringing new creation. And this this blessing of this first miracle, it's a miracle of God's blessing, his abundance, his grace, his generosity, it comes on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath day as we relate it to Genesis chapter 1. And so Jesus is bringing this new creation blessing in this wedding uh, miracle at Cana in Galilee. Jesus is the one who will, by his work, usher in a new and a better rest, an everlasting rest, a Sabbath blessing that will be connected to the eternal life that he brings. That's what's going on here at this uh, wedding in Cana. Jesus is the God of creation and new creation. He is also the God of mercy and grace. This miracle shows us that Jesus reflects the heart of God. God is a gracious and he is a merciful God. Jesus is not an ascetic monk who stays away from all of the people. No, he he doesn't stay on the fringes of the cities or the towns. He comes and he gets involved in their lives. And he comes to this very human event, a wedding. Now, marriage is the institution that Jesus himself created, right? Because he was with God the Father at the beginning, creating all things. And he is the one who created marriage and who instituted it. He reaffirmed its validity in the Gospels when he said God created them from the beginning, male and female. And Jesus comes to this very human celebration, this very human event, To show us that he's not going to stay on the fringes. He's going to come into the lives of human beings. And he's going to, in a sense, intrude their lives. And bring his mercy and his grace right to the heart of their lives. He is not a God who stays on the fringes of our lives. And the application there for us, brothers and sisters, is to remember that Jesus, as Lord, does not stay on the fringes of our lives. He is a God who demands our devotion and our allegiance because his mercy and his grace transforms every aspect of who we are. But this traveling to to confront the sinfulness of man, this coming from heaven into the very heart of the earth, the very center of our lives, shows us about the mercy and the grace and the heart of God. And that Jesus reflects that. And Jesus is the God of mercy and of grace. Jesus is also the independent God. He's the independent God. This is uh, seen in Jesus' interaction with Mary, his mother. As uh, the, they're at this wedding, this wedding celebration and reception, Mary comes up to Jesus in order to give him this news that, that the wine is running out. And that tells us that this may have been a, a relative or a family friend of Jesus and Mary. She perhaps felt some kind of responsibility to make sure that it, was a, that it was a good wedding, that there wasn't shame that came upon uh, the bridegroom who was the host of it. 
And she comes and she interacts with Jesus. And at the beginning, how is she addressing him? She's addressing him as his mother, isn't she? It's as if she's, she's coming and saying, they're, they're out of wine, as if to say, now please be a good son and do something about this. Jesus responds to her with a gentle rebuke. And it's really, really hard to translate, so it's hard to blame, uh, to blame our translation. But Jesus responds by saying what? He says, dear woman. Now, that's perhaps fine. The, the, the best way to translate this would be ma'am. In other words, Jesus is being very polite, uh, but he's, in a sense, remaining aloof. It's a non-intimate way to address someone. It certainly wouldn't be the kind of way that most people would address their mother. So Jesus, in a sense, gives her a gentle rebuke. He says, uh, ma'am, my time has not yet come. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that he's not going to be swayed by these relationships by which most people are swayed, right? If mom comes and says something, right, I'm, I'm in my 30s now, but if, if mom comes to me and says, be a good son and do this for me, I'm probably going to do it for her. But Jesus shows that he's so different than all other people who have ever lived, that he's not going to be swayed by these kinds of connections and these kinds of relationships. And it's so fascinating, isn't it, that Mary responds in the right way. She responds in faith. She sort of, in a sense, acquiesces to Jesus' gentle rebuke, and she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And what she's saying there is basically a reflection of her own heart. She's recognizing that Jesus is a Lord that needs to be believed in. She is a Lord that demands her devotion as well. Just because Mary is the mother of Jesus doesn't mean she doesn't need to have faith as well. And Jesus showing that he has this disconnection from those kinds of normal human relationships as he accomplishes his mission to be the righteous one who goes to the cross reminds us that Jesus is the independent God. We saw that in Article 1 of our confession. God does not depend on human beings God is not swayed by human beings. They cannot change his mind. They cannot convince him to do something different than his will. And Jesus is God. He is the independent God. Wonderful to remember that he is not nepotistic. Mary has to give her allegiance to Jesus by faith alone. Jesus is the independent God. He's also the God of fulfillment and abundant blessing. So you get to the heart of this wedding story and this miracle that Jesus does. These events are somewhat misunderstood. And there, there's a couple subtle things that go, along, that go on here in the text that I think are important for us to know. Most people assume that uh, when Jesus fills these jars with water and then he transforms the water that's in the jars to be the wine. I don't believe that that's actually what happens here and I'm going to tell you why in just a minute. But this, uh, this water and wine miracle shows us that Jesus is the God of fulfillment and abundant blessing. As Jesus says to the servants to take these six stone pots, these big jars that hold 20 to 30 gallons, uh, John tells us that they are pots for ceremonial washing. And what that means is that John is wanting those to be a symbol for us 
of all of the things connected to Old Testament temple worship. They are connected to all of the things, the ceremonies, the washings, the sacrifices, the distinction between, between clean and unclean. Those pots stand in as symbols for that. And when Jesus tells the servants to fill them up to the top, What's going on here is John is saying that all of that, the temple worship, the clean and the unclean, all of the sacrifices, the time for all of that is filled. The time for all of that is done. Jesus is bringing something new. And that something new is is something that only God could have done. And thus, as Jesus does it, as he is the one who brings something that's even greater than Old Testament worship, which we need to understand is a very great thing. But Jesus brings something that's even better, that's newer, that's greater than the Old Covenant. What we need to realize is that he is God himself and he is the God of fulfillment. So he has them fill these six stone jars And then there's this miracle of the wine. The question is, where do the servants get this wine from? I believe that when we read that Jesus has them draw out some more water, what he has them actually do is go back to the well. He has them go back to that well and draw out from that well in order to bring it to the headmaster of this wedding. And so what I believe happens here is Jesus has them draw out from that well and from that well itself comes the wine. See, I think that what John is doing symbolically, it it would have been too strange for Jesus to to have them fill those stone water jars which are so closely connected to Old Testament temple worship and then the wine comes from there. And I think that, that symbolically as it comes from the well itself, the wine, it shows that Jesus is the God of abundant blessing. There is no uh, uh, limited amount of this wine. The idea is Jesus is saying as much as you possibly need of what I can give, I'm going to give to you. I am the God of abundant blessing. I am the God of abundant grace. There is no end to the supply of my grace. It is a well from which all may keep drawing, and it has no limit. So for that, Jesus is the Lord of fulfillment. He is the Lord of uh, abundant blessing, and he is the one who brings something new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. Jesus is the God of glory. We read at the end of this miracle that Jesus revealed his glory, that is, his own glory. Now, if Jesus were not God, would it be right for him to reveal his own glory? Would it be right for him to accept someone else glorifying him? Could he seek his own glory? Of course not. We read in Isaiah chapter 42, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. God doesn't share his glory. And we read here of Jesus revealing his glory. We read here of Jesus glorifying himself because he is God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we read this. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. In other words, the God who created all things. The God who created all things. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is this perfect image of the glory of God. He is the one who has come. To reveal God's glory. Jesus is the glorious God. 
See all of those things in the story in the wedding. If you would, you can turn over to John chapter 11. If you're following along, we're going to look at the raising of Lazarus and see God's glory in belief and trust. The first point is this. Jesus is the eternal sovereign God. He is the eternal sovereign God. He knows the end from the beginning. Verse 4 of John 11, we read, When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus knows what's about to happen in this account of Lazarus and his death. And Jesus can direct events for the purpose of his glory. He knows the end from the beginning, and he knows what's about to happen. It shows us that he is God. In Isaiah chapter 44, God is is looking out on all of the the idolatry that's going on in Israel and beyond. He's saying, it's so foolish. There's no other God besides me, and I'll prove it to you. I'm the only one who can tell you what's about to happen. We read this in Isaiah 44. Who is like me, says God speaking. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them, that is these supposed gods, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. And here is Jesus exactly knowing how this event is going to go, knowing what's about to happen, knowing that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows that he's going to die on the cross, and he knows the end from the beginning. Jesus is the eternal and the sovereign God. He is the God who is to be believed and trusted. He calls his disciples not to question him, but to follow him and to believe uh, through what he does. We read in John eleven eleven. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Jesus is saying, trust me, I know what's going to happen, and I'm going to do this great thing, and then I want you to believe and to trust in me. And I'm showing you what I'm doing so that you do it. He calls Martha also to believe that he is the resurrection and the life. Verse 25 of John 11. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He's calling Martha. Say, look at me. I'm the resurrection and I'm the life. Trust in me. He could not do this if he were not God. He could not call Martha. He could not call his disciples to trust in him if he were not God. This is why he's a perfect savior, brothers and sisters. He's worthy of our trust. We can trust in him because he is God. Because he knows the end from the beginning. Because he can direct all things. Because he can do so for his glory and for our good. He is also the God of wrath and love. He is the God of wrath and love. In verse 33, Mary and all of the, the, the professional mourners, this is, this is what happened back then. There would be families sometimes if someone died. Perhaps if they died unexpectedly, there would be these mourners who would be hired and paid money to sort of make a show of, of the mourning process around the house of 
the deceased. And they, they come out to meet Jesus, Mary and the Jews, uh, the mourning Jews behind her. And we read that Jesus was deeply moved and troubled. Uh, I think that there's sort of an instinct here to kind of soften what's going on. But really, if we translate that very literally, Jesus is not deeply moved and troubled. He is outraged. He is very angry when Mary and the mourners come uh, to him. Why is he angry? He's angry because of the extravagance with which they are mourning. There's this great big show and they're mourning as pagan nations would do. The point of it is Jesus, as he has just called Martha to believe, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, your brother will rise again. And the point is that if you know Jesus, then your entire attitude about death has to change. You do not mourn death like the ones who do not know of the resurrection, who cannot be confident in the resurrection. And so he sees this big extravagant show with Mary and these professional um, mourners, this show of grief, and he is outraged by it. Because sin and death and unbelief all inflame God's wrath and his anger. And Jesus is truly God. And he needs to reflect the character of God at all times. And so when he sees something that he detests, he is outraged by it. He is the God of wrath. But he is also the God of love. He is the God of love. Mary shows him the tomb where they have laid Lazarus. And he weeps. Why does he weep? I believe he weeps for the same reason for which he is outraged. When he comes face to face with sin and death and unbelief, he is moved because he loves his creatures, because he loves those whom he has created. And it grieves him to see the extent to which the world has rebelled against him. It was never the intention of God at creation He created human beings to love him and to glorify him. And we rebelled against him. And Jesus is met face to face with all of this that's going on. And he is grieved by it. So he weeps. He is moved uh, to mourn and to cry over all of this that has happened. See, Jesus is the same one who will rebuke the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. Call them hypocrites. uh, Basically say all the bad things you can say about someone. And then in the next chapter, what is he doing? He's weeping over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks. But you would not come to me. You would not repent. You would not listen to me. Human beings, we think that there can be no coexistence of compassion and anger, right? You gotta be one or the other. In that moment, you're either really happy, loving, compassionate, or you are angry. But God can be the God of wrath and love. And both of those can coexist perfectly with no tension because that's who God is. He's perfect. He's beyond our our comprehension. He's beyond what we can understand. And Jesus is that God. He's the God of wrath and love. That is who Jesus is. He is also the Lord and the God of life. He is the Lord and the God of life. He comes to this this moment where he, he raises Lazarus from the dead and He says, Lazarus, come forth. It's been said by, I think correctly, by pastors or scholars that if Jesus had not specified that he was speaking to Lazarus, 
possibly all of the graves, all of the tombs in that area would have had the bodies rise up and come forth. Because that's the power of God speaking. He has life-creating power in the things that he says. And so he says, Lazarus, come forth. And in the speaking of those words, there is power. There is life-giving power. And the picture there is that 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 is the same power that is active in the proclamation of Christ. And when, when the gospel is proclaimed, when that word goes forth, that in Jesus Christ you can be forgiven, that in Jesus Christ you can have salvation because he is God in the flesh, a perfect savior. When those words go forth and they touch a dead heart and make it alive, that is the power of God. And that's what we see reflected here in Uh, in the story of Lazarus. We read in John 5, for instance, Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And when we're faced with this message that you can have salvation in Christ, You experience that resurrection before the day. And so when the gospel is proclaimed and dead hearts are are brought to life and they look to Christ for salvation, what's going on there is God is bringing the eternal blessedness into the present. But we see here that as Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he proves to us that he is the God and the Lord of life. Shows us, doesn't it, brothers and sisters, that we need to lean on the truth of who Jesus is. That we need to let these truths grip our hearts so that they might shape our lives. It's not fancy strategies that's going to continue building the church. It's not human ideas. It's the word of God. It's the proclamation of who Jesus is. To every corner of the earth, from the deepest corner of the jungle into the the, the heart of the biggest cities, that there is this universal problem of sin and condemnation and rebellion against God. And there is this proclamation that needs to happen, that this Jesus Christ is God in the flesh and he is such a perfect savior and you need to have your life be transformed by him and you need to have these truths grip your hearts to understand and to comprehend that he is God, that he is God in the flesh and that he came for you, he came to live for you, he came to die for you. He is the God, the eternal sovereign God. He is the God of creation and new creation. He is the independent God. He didn't need to come to earth to save but he did. He is all these things and he is all these things for us. He is the one whose righteousness was able to grant a permanent and everlasting resurrection. The the story of Lazarus is that it's a pale anticipation of what Jesus actually accomplishes. When he raises Lazarus from the dead, he rises up and he still has the grave clothes on him and he's probably, you know, trying to wake up and trying to make his way, feel his way out of the grave. When Jesus is resurrected, The grave clothes are laid to the side. He's raised with a spiritual body. Immortality has taken control over his human flesh. And that is the resurrection in which we share in and through Jesus Christ. All of this, all of these things, the God of creation and new creation, the God of mercy and grace, the independent God, the God of abundant blessing, all of this is so that The truth about Jesus would grip our hearts, that we would 
love him a little bit more, that we would ponder these things in our hearts and we would just say, Jesus, I love you. I love you. I don't understand everything about God's word or the Trinity. I can't always get it, grasp it as much as I could. I, I don't always know what Pastor Dan is talking about because sometimes he goes off on these weird tangents, but it's just to say, Jesus, I love you. I love you. And I'm so grateful for what you have done for me. I'm so grateful that you came to earth. You didn't have to. You were the eternal and the sovereign God. And you came to earth to live for me and to die for me. And I'm so grateful for the cross. And I'm so grateful for what you have done. And even though we don't necessarily understand all the depths of of scripture all the time. That our love of all of those things, our comprehension, little by little, steadily advancing to realize more and more who Jesus is and what he has done. We will love him more. We will serve him more. Our hearts will be gripped with these truths because we know that that's why John has written them, so that you may believe, so that you may love, so that you may serve all of your days, knowing that there is nothing greater for you to do, to serve your God by loving your Savior, Jesus Christ, and always living for him and always trusting in him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you have saved us through Christ, your son. To you be all the glory now and forever. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's respond together in song.